You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 11, 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So nice to be with you this morning. I love this church. I've been here about four years, though I knew Kevin for a few more years than that. And I used to take my kids to old sojourn, like, you know, kind of back in, in the hill, whatever, way back, 20 years ago. Wow. But I've been here for about four years, and I love, I love the music, and I love the amazing preaching we hear consistently, and the people here are wonderful. So I'm honored, thrilled to, to be with you, especially with this incredible passage that we have before us today. What is it like to get an invitation to a gathering, to a party, to uh, a group of people that you're kind of... Uh, um, surprised about, uh, pleasantly surprised, you know, people that you kind of wanted to know, maybe were starting to know, and then they invite you to some gathering, and you're, you're happy about that, you're, you're uh, honored, you feel uh, uh, pleased. What, what's going on in that, kind of psychologically? An invitation is a symbolic event, When we invite people to our home for dinner, we're saying to them, we're communicating to them that that we value them and we want to spend some time with them and get to know them better. They're important to us. Even, you know, everyday life has small, we might say, invitations where you just... Maybe uh, at work with a coworker or after a service, you initiate conversation with someone. That's a kind of invitation to get to know them, and it honors them when, when we reach out in that way. The stakes are even higher when the invitation comes from higher up the social ladder. In our region, I suppose the most status-heavy invitations occur around derby time, from what I hear. 
I don't know much about that world, but as you know, there are all kinds of parties that go on, small gatherings with families and friends and, and work, work parties. But then we've all heard about the so-called A-list parties, where they have celebrities that come from all around and, and wealthy people, local and, and, and national, uh, get an invitation to these special parties that they talk about in, some, in the newspaper and on, we see them on television. And, um, in some way, getting an invitation to those parties is, is symbolic as well, right? It signifies one's status, one's perceived value in that upper echelon community. Well, whether formal or informal, then, invitations are a symbolic act. They communicate something of value. that we want to spend time with the people that we invite to our gathering, or they want to spend time with us. Well, with that as a backdrop, let's return to the context of our passage today. You remember last week, Pastor Kevin helped us to consider the spiritual struggles of one of the greatest persons of faith in the Bible, John the Baptist. And he was struggling. He had certain expectations about Jesus that were not being fulfilled in the people he hung out with and the things that he was doing and the fact that he, he wasn't taking on the Romans maybe quite the way he thought he should. And, and this, this caused him to doubt. Are, are you really the Messiah? I was sure I saw a dove come down out of heaven on you, but I'm not so sure now. What's, what's going on? And, and, and Jesus says, yeah, I am. I'm just doing some different stuff than, than you apparently uh, thought. And it, it appears there's a, there's a number of, of uh, steps in this passage. It's almost as if he was thinking about John the Baptist and then his mind went to these cities. These cities that had witnessed some of his acts of mercy and love and healing and teaching. And um, they, they were, these cities were not so impressed. And, and, and it struck Jesus that John the Baptist was different than these cities. Uh, he had done miracles. They had seen miracles. But they, they didn't respond. They maybe were stuck in their ways. They weren't impressed by the manifestation of the glory that they saw. It was almost as if they were just so busy, whatever, with what they were doing in their, uh, in, in their realm, that they were blind to his glory. And they couldn't see the Messiah that was, that was there. And so he pronounced a series of woes upon them, a, a set of warnings, really calling them and others like them to wake up to see what's before you, the works of God that are, that are in your midst, to pay attention so that you not go down that broad way that leads to destruction. And then, again, there's a kind of an abrupt shift. Rather suddenly, Jesus turned to prayer. At that time, kind of, you know, in the underscoring, it, it was a kind of a shift. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding 
and reveal them to little children, to babies, kind of the word is. It's a, a metaphor, uh, but a powerful one. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And I think we can say that it makes Christ sort of happy to think about the irony here. I thank you, Father, that you're this kind of God, that you turn the values of this world upside down. The cities with their important people and skilled and powerful folks who are in charge and busy, but, but just too busy for God. They're not looking for God, and so they don't see God when he's around them and when he manifests his glory in their lives. But the Father is bringing in a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, through the Son, within which the last are first and the first are last. And it pleases the Father to overturn these hierarchies of competence, we might call them, Hierarchies that he's built into the structure of creation. I mean, he's the one that sets kings on their thrones and, and so on. They're a part of his created order. But he, he seems to enjoy to turn that upside down and turn his attention to little children, to babies. We're going to see to physically handicapped, emotionally handicapped. I think that's implied in what he says next. To the obvious sinners of this world. These are the people he hung out with. There's a message there too, right? In order to work his divine wonders. To show us, as Paul put it, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then, this in turn, leads him to some reflection on the Trinity. The line of thought here is marvelously surprising. He's, he's defending John in his doubt, then warning cities that ignored and, and re rejected the manifestation of his glory, then struck with the irony of God who turns things upside down, and then he teaches those present all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a powerful message of grace not superiority, not hierarchies of competence dictate who comes to the Lord, but it is the grace of God. And here we have this little passage of the Trinity. It's unusual in the Gospel of Matthew. More common do we see that teaching in the Gospel of John. And of course the apostles picked up on that and were inspired to elaborate that doctrine later in the Bible. But this is the most... The, the fullest teaching on the Trinity in, in Matthew. Jesus here speaks as deity. He speaks as the Son of God and acknowledges his sovereign authority over the entire universe. All things have been handed to him. He gives life to whom he wishes. And he also shares with us that he has infinite 
reciprocal intimacy with the Father. They know each other perfectly. They're omniscient God together. The Father knows the Son perfectly. The Son knows the Father perfectly. They, they share that in absolute perfection. Jesus says, we share everything in common. And we dwell in perfect harmony and communion. And he also gives them the ultimate reason why some people are open to the Son. Because they share that communion with the little ones. The little ones of this earth. We have to remind ourselves here that knowing persons is not like knowing things, like knowing scientific information about rocks or about trees. Because persons, you can't get to know them unless they open up, unless they share something of themselves with you, unless you pursue them with a question to draw them out. You can't get to know them. And if it's that way with us persons, how much more is that with the infinitely great persons of the Trinity? But before anyone can stumble at this awesome truth and get caught up in some theological controversy, Calvinists and Arminians arguing amongst the disciples or whatever, instead he issues an invitation. And implied in this invitation is a question. Do you want to know the Trinity? Do you want to know the Father and the Son? Do you want to enter into the kind of communion that they have? At least a, a little bit of it? Would you like that? Then come to me, all who labor and are weary. Come to me, all who are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you that rest that we enjoy. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So to whom is this invitation given? This wasn't the A-list Folks, isn't that the point? Uh, I guess the only A-list person on the list was Jesus, you know? <laughs> on the contrary, he's inviting the little ones, the insignificant ones, the ones that aren't big, powerful people in the cities. And then, and he spells it out a little bit more, the exhausted and struggling folks, those who have labored and they're weary, they're worn out, they're tired, and, and there's maybe a slight contrast with these two phrases. Also those that are burdened. They carry struggles, disabilities of various kinds, we can imagine. They carry, they're weighed down by the stresses of life, the responsibilities that they deal with, the lack of gratitude from their spouse or from their kids or coworkers or they carry, they're feeling the loss of energy. They're just depleted. 
They're perhaps aware of obstacles in their souls. Barriers that keep them from being more whole. Conflict in their relationships with others that they keep stumbling over. And they carry these things with them at work, in their families, in their personal souls, maybe in a secret way that nobody knows because they're They don't feel free enough to share it with anybody. But of course, this is most everybody, isn't it? At one point or another. And yet, I I think, so I think there's maybe we we ought to think about this invitation as concentric circles. Everybody can relate at some point in time in their lives, in seasons, whatever. But maybe we should add that this is perhaps especially aimed at those folks that have had exceptional trials in their lives, since those are the kind of people that Christ ministered to and hung out with so much. And one one other thought I think is, is implicit here, and certainly in the Gospel of Matthew, is there's a special sense in which it's those who have religiously labored and tried so hard to get to know God and feel so frustrated because they still feel far away. They've labored. They're weary. They know of burdens in their lives, guilt and shame that they carry, and they just don't feel worth it, worthy of, of God, perhaps coming to a conclu- such a conclusion Maybe thinking of giving up at at some point. Well, what did Christ tell these people to do? Three things. Come to me first. Come to me. This invitation is a symbolic act. It's a communication of Jesus to you and I. The Messiah is saying to the tired and struggling and burdened that you matter to me. I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. Come, get to know me. So he appeals to his hearers, really, to to begin an ongoing spiritual act of response to his openness to them and to avail themselves of his goodness and his inexhaustible resources. After all, all things have been given to him. And when we come, we find out we're no longer alone. In in our sin, we are alienated from God and we are cosmically alone. And some of us know it very well. We feel that loneliness deep, deep in our souls, never feeling like we quite fit in, always feeling in some way like we're on the outs. Well, that's a sign of our alienation from God. But when we come to him, we find a friend who is faithful for eternity. And we are with him. And therefore, let me say it again, no longer alone in our exhaustion and our burdens Because he's with us. Christianity is relational religion. It's very different from Buddhism, for example, which you can go to the the temple anytime you want because it's just you and you. That's all all that religion has. But our, 
Our religion is a God who invites us into him and his presence. And we might say that there are two ways in which this can happen. There's a kind of daily way that we come to him. Every day, opening up our souls to the Lord. We call this devotion. or different traditions have their own way of putting it. But it's important that we, that we do that in kind of a daily way. We, this, is, this is taking care of ourselves in a Christian sense and uh, opening our souls up to the one who loves us most. But over time, that, that's, that is to, to lead us into a deepening character formation of our souls so that we draw closer to him over time. And I, I had the spiral there. This is like a spiral of inward deepening where we learn how to come to him deeply in our hearts. And that takes time. It takes months, years, even decades to, to, to learn how to, to practice the, that, that presence of the Lord in that way. That's what this, I think, this passage is about. Now, of course, there is an ultimate sense in which we will find him in eternity. But, but this is the daily way, the, and, then the, and then the yearly way, that over the course of our lives, we get to know him better. And I think both are essential for growing into psycho-spiritual maturity. I would say this is a passage about what the ancients have called contemplative prayer. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Come to me, he says. And then he says, the surprising metaphor, take my yoke upon you. We don't see yokes so much anymore, except in eggs. Sorry about that. But in that day, yokes were really important. People would use them to carry heavy things long distance. Water, for example, because they didn't have faucets in their, in their homes and they had to go to the river and carry water and they would, this yoke would kind of balance so that they could carry a couple buckets, for example, or other heavy items with, with on these, these two sides of, of the yoke. Yoke, of course, is a kind of Joke. It was considered an instrument of oppression in that day. Often servants and slaves would, would be the ones that would carry yokes. And so there's this you know, irony, this wonderful irony between exchanging our burdens for a yoke that's easy. And it even, we even find rest with this. So Christ is, you know, he loves, he loves irony and metaphor. But it's also a nice metaphor because it suggests that we have something to do. This Christianity isn't, isn't magic. You know, it's, it's not just everything happens magically if you just hold the Bible long enough. Ah, oh, the Bible, yes. It's not like that. There, there's stuff that we have to do. It's a, it's a participation in this invitation. And so the yoke also brings that out. You've got you to gotta carry stuff. It's easy. It's the, the more you enter into it, the easier you will find it in a sense. Though there's a paradox and a mystery to all of it. But it points us to the fact that, that, that we have something to do if we're going to flourish in the Christian life. We have to surrender some things. We have to repent. We have to believe. We have to receive. And that takes time and, and um, 
It involves our activity. And then thirdly, he says, learn from me. Learn here has the same root as disciple and discipleship. Being a disciple involves learning. But there are different kinds of learning. So it's not just head learning. I know a fair amount about head learning. I've spent a lot of time reading the Bible and theology, and uh, I love it. But in, early, in my early years, I would say in, in, by my 30s, I began to realize that all the theology that I had wasn't helping me to be a better husband and a better father. And that was confusing to me because I thought if you just knew these facts, these theological truths, that would, they would do magic in a way and they would change you. But come to find out, God loves doctrine. He gave us a pretty big Bible after all. But what he, the goal is, is as we learn these things, he wants us to get them into our hearts. It's heart learning that he's actually after. It's relational learning. It's the kind of learning you learn in the presence of others. And you can only learn it in the presence of others. It's about learning about the beauty of his character, he says here. Learning that he's gentle and lowly of heart. And to do this means, means we have to spend some time with him, doesn't it? Prayer and meditation Think for a moment about this Jesus that he says he is. Gentle, lowly, or humble in heart. The words, English words associated with the Greek words are humble, considerate, meek, unassuming. They imply a kind of low position in culture. Perhaps living in poverty or being one who is undistinguished, not on the A-list. Milder terms he probably couldn't have used. And this is our Jesus. This is our God. We know, especially from the Old Testament, that God is awesome. He's the creator and sustainer of the entire universe and beyond. Who knows how many universes he's created and sustaining that he didn't tell us about. And he exists throughout this entire universe holding everything together by the word of his power, omnipresent, sovereign king of the universe, exploding supernovas with unimaginable power that we see from millions of light years away and wonder at their beauty because of the Hubble telescope. Thank God for the Hubble telescope. And we know upon reflection then, God is great. He's awesome. He's huge. Yet when he came to earth, he had another message, addition to that, to share with us that he is so huge, so great, so awesome that it's not beneath his dignity to be to come as a gentle, lowly of heart human being. You see, in his heart of hearts, he's actually not a scary God. 
It's appropriate to fear him in his awesomeness. That's an appropriate holy response to God. But in his heart of hearts, he's not scary. He's surprisingly approachable. And he invites us to come near to him. And what is the result of coming near to to this God? You will find rest for your souls. Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, we find out in the next chapter, promises us the Sabbath rest that he's been promising implicitly throughout the Old Testament. What is this rest? Ultimately, it is a rest in heaven. That's the perfect rest that awaits us, the Sabbath rest. Hebrews refers to that. It is a deep rest from all of the burdens that we carry down here, from the the weariness of this life and its struggles and temptations. No more sin, and he'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. No more internal conflict. No more yelling at each other inside our heads at how stupid we were. We are. You might not deal with that, but some people do. And no more of that. And no more conflict between one another. It's going to be a great and a glorious time. It's going to, it's going to make derby parties like nothing. I mean, you know, that's really the point. Uh, the book of Revelation is trying with metaphor to get us excited about this perfect place of blessedness. But the promise also is, implies that we can get closer to this rest, we can enter into this rest, some in this life. It is a rest of forgiveness. It is a rest where you're, you know more and more deeply that your shame and your guilt has been taken away. It's a rest of knowing more and more fully that you're accepted, that I'm accepted in the beloved Jesus Christ so that I don't have to work so hard anymore, so I don't have to prove myself to others and to care so much what you think or to perform and perform in order to be something, whatever. No, it's a rest of being freed of all of that because I'm already perfect in Christ. I'm already complete and I've been given all that I need in order to know that, to develop a new identity, a new sense of who I am before God. Because of Christ's perfect life and his perfect death where he took away all my bad stuff and his resurrection where he gives me all this good stuff because I'm a sibling of his now and I get to share in all of the blessings that he obtained for us because of his work. So it is a rest of being in a forever love relationship with the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wow. Have you tasted much of that rest? How's it going for you today? You know, I think all Christians have tasted it at some point or other, maybe when they first converted or, or whatever. Some other, some other time in, in, in their lives. It seems to me, I think it seems to most Christians, that it comes and goes, the rest. 
experiencing the rest, but that the goal of God's work is that over time we would enter a little bit more fully into it over the course of our lives, some more than others. Monks and nuns maybe the most because they spend all day, every day seeking this, and the rest of us are pretty busy with other stuff. But it's still an invitation to Protestants, right? And as well as Catholics, all Catholics. Well, let's think about some implications of, of this, shall we? First, before we go back to what it means to come to Jesus, I, I want to remind us that coming to Jesus also means coming to one another. We meet with Christ and the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of our brothers and sisters in this assembly, in our, in our small groups, ideally with other, with other believers who know Christ. And that's God's intention that we, you remember Paul in Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens too. It's not good for us to be alone. And the Christian life doesn't work right. It doesn't work at all, really, the way God intended if we're on our own, just, just me and Jesus. That's not God's design. The love of neighbor and love, love of God and love of neighbor are part of a holistic triangle that God has built us for. And so I thought I might mention that um, Sojourn has a lay counseling ministry that you may not have known of, or if you did, uh, you might benefit from hearing about it again. We have 15 wonderful people who have, are, are normal people like you, but they've been trained a little extra to be good listeners and to walk alongside other people on their journeys and to help carry their burdens somewhat. And if you're interested in that, check on the, the website to find out more. Say, we'd love to work with you one at a time. Yeah. But, but this is mostly about Jesus, this invitation today. And the invitation comes, comes first to those who don't know him. Because this is wide open. It doesn't say you, you, know, you first need to be a good person or you first need to go to church like for three years. It's wide open. It says, come to me. And if you don't know this Jesus, you wanna, you, you'll want to know him after you get to know him. And maybe even some of the things we've talked about today have kind of whetted your appetite that you wish there really was somebody like that in the universe. And, 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 and we've, we've gotten to know him. And he's the best thing we've ever known. And we, want, we would love it if you would come to this Jesus and find out what a great friend he is that's always with us and always faithful no matter what. Come up at the end and I or one of the other church leaders would love to talk with you and pray with you. But this is also a wide open invitation to all of us today and really every day of our Christian lives. He's always inviting you to come. It's an open invitation to spend time with him. Do you see? Do you, do you get the point of this? There's a, there's a message in this invitation that he wants to spend time with you. He, he loves you. He's interested in your life and he wants you to get to know him and he wants to know you experientially. He knows you omnisciently, of course, but he, he wants, he's inviting us to open up our hearts to him. 
That's, that's how we love one another in, in an intimate reciprocal relationship like the Trinity. But for us, it's, you know, it, has, it, happens, it has to happen in time as we learn how to open ourselves up to him. He wants you to succeed in life in the most important way you can. And it's knowing, having eternal life, to know him. That's the best it gets down here. He wants you to find that rest and to flourish in that way. Do you believe that today? If you're a Christian, I know that you know it in your head. But to what degree do you believe it in your heart? And today is an opportunity for us to foster a little deepening of that word that we know in our heads. To open up a little bit more to his communion. Some of us have real difficulty believing that Christ would want to have anything to do with us or would want to spend time with us. Maybe you've had an especially difficult life. Maybe things in your life have persuaded you that you're not worth much, that you're uninteresting, that you're too shameful for anybody to really want to spend time with you. Maybe you've had more than your fair share of labor in this life, burdens that you've carried along the way. Maybe especially in childhood, in a very difficult childhood, maybe especially difficult adulthood, maybe both. But whoever you are and wherever you are, he says to you, you are welcome here with me. And all that you bring with you is welcome here with me. It's a phrase I learned in Men at the Cross that I cherish He says to you, I want to know you better. I'm not done with you yet. I want you to know what it's like to commune with me the way that I commune with my Father more. It'll be great in heaven, but I want you to enjoy more of that now and therefore to open up your soul to more and more of your heart with him, sharing your thoughts, your feelings, your inner conflicts, your relational conflicts, your feeling of inadequacy and incompetence, all of it's welcome. He really wants you to enter into his rest. So why doesn't that happen very much? You might be thinking. Why is it so slow? thought a lot about that at 63. And the fact is, he didn't make it easy. It's ironic, I know, easy yoke, but it's not so easy. This is a world of hardship and challenges and barriers and burdens. He set things up precisely this way so that you and he would learn how to collaborate in this journey, because it isn't magical. It isn't snap your fingers. It isn't memorize a bunch of Bible verses and everything will work out okay. The Bible's important, but that's not how he works. He can do it that way. We know he can go zap. I mean, he did that when he was on earth, right? But that's not usually the way he operates. 
down here. He works with his temporal creation, and we are creatures of time, and it takes time. And over time, he changes our hearts. Changing our minds is relatively easy. You can do that in three years, according to seminary education. But the changing of the heart is a much slower process. And that's because it's tied to our brain development and our activity, learning new patterns of thinking, new patterns of feeling, new patterns of relating to others in light of Scripture, in light of what God is doing in my heart over time, wooing me, persuading me that, yeah, it's real, and it's not just a head trip, but it's a heart trip. And all of this is what the ancients have called contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is where we come to him. We spend time with him. And the, we maybe could say, I'm going to just turn this metaphor into the, the spiritual disciplines. It's an easy yoke, but it's a hard yoke. I mean, it's a paradox, and I'll leave you to work, work that out. But as we enter into it, it gets better. It gets better. Trust the old folks that have walked these ways, the folks that have written the books over the centuries, Julian of Norwich, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Bonaventure, Augustine, and others. And it's never finished in this life. So, what is it? It's, it's learning how... I'm sorry, I also have to bring this up. It's learning of him. So it's coming to him, it's taking on this yoke and learning what that means and being patient with the process where we, are, we spend time in contemplative prayer learning of him. Lord, teach me, teach me your beauty, your goodness, your holiness. Teach it to me in light of this stuff that I bring to you and speak it to me in those burdened places and in those weary places where I'm still holding out for something else. And through that process, we learn how to rest in our devotion time. We learn how to rest in the cross after we've sinned against somebody. We learn how to slow down through a busy day of unrelenting demands from our family or work or whatever. We learn how to rest in the presence of a critical spouse and not jump in reaction of def and defensiveness. But over time, we learn how to rest. And this is the invitation that Christ is giving us every day, eternally. And every week, we have an opportunity to be reminded of this rest. Because he died for us, and he invited us to come to his table and be reminded that he, yes, he broke his body and and shed his blood, and, and in this church we take a piece of bread and we put it in the cup either of juice or wine, as our conscience permits. That's the way we're supposed to say it. Um, and Christ invites us then to, to remember he, he does love us. So I, I want to I encourage you just to take that a little bit deeper. We, get, you know, we all get into a routine. That's normal. That's, that's normal. But how about today you spend a little bit of time while the, the band is warming up or beginning to play and you just, just open up a little bit more, go a little bit deeper with the, the revelation that he, 
the kind of God that he is. And when you, when you come down to the line and you take that bread and you dip it, remind yourself, he's inviting you to go deeper with this symbol, this beautiful symbol of taking it into your body and, and let that settle in there and rest in you with, with thankfulness. That's, that's a part of what, what this invitation is all about. So let's pray that the Lord accompanies our routine with him. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.